Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, activist and author L.A. Kaufman, who just released her new book, Direct Action. There's something special about being in a room with other people and trying to do something together in person in the real world. Kaufman will be telling us how to be more effective activists by benefiting from the successes and failures of our predecessors. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. So did you all get your pink hats this weekend? I hope so. I was at the New York version of the Women's March on Washington, and it was really not a march so much as a stand. We, uh, you know, from the second you get off the train in Grand Central Station, the crowd was backed up all the way to there from uh, from Second Avenue, where we were supposed to be gathering. It was really great to be part of something. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I don't usually go in for these sort of, I don't know, emotional, touchy-feely things in spite of being the the <laughs> the team human guy. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't go to church or synagogue and stuff. I always feel like, let's just get to work. Let's just do. But it was uh, really uh, a very reinforcing day. It was really great to see everybody else and to feel whether or not anybody was listening or watching, 
what we were all doing, just to see so many people, just to be with half a million other people who felt this, this way, it, it created a sense of solidarity that I think is going to be very strengthening for weeks, months, even years to come. You know, an event like that, when you see all the others, when you find the others in that uh, pronounced a way, well, then it's a little bit easier to do some of the scary things that might be asked of us moving forward. So if, uh, let's say, the Trump administration decides to uh, initiate a Muslim registry where they're going to keep track of all the Muslims in the country, this would be an opportunity for another few million Americans to sign on. Let's all convert to uh, Islam. Let's all be Muslims. Let's all sign on to this list, which would make it relatively impossible for them to keep track of, you know, everyone who's uh, they're thinking of already as Muslim. But that's kind of a scary thing to do if you think you're doing it alone, if you don't know who else is there. Something like this makes you realize, no, no, there's a lot of people here and there's people doing way more uh, invested things than most of us. So don't worry, you're not going to be the, the first one out there who's going to get you know slammed by the new, uh, uh, the new secret police when you sign on to something. So it was great to see, oh, wow, we're kind of in the majority here. This is the entirety of New York. There was also... I mean, there was some value to be kind of united in anger, united in opposition. I get that. And, and I understand that. There's been a lot of sadness, and this was a chance to convert some of that sadness into anger and action and opposition. But the bigger value for me was not the, the rage or the anger. I didn't even really see that so much as the value of just looking in the eyes of all these other people, I felt like my understanding of what humans are got acknowledged and reinforced. I looked at people and saw the, the quality of a, of a person who cares about their world, cares about how our government is treating people. That humanness, that humaneness was really the most important thing for me. Seeing them on the train, talking to people who, you know, gosh, they protested back in the uh, in Kennedy's era before the missile crisis, the anti-nuke protest, the anti-Vietnam protest. And even they were saying, gosh, this is the biggest protest. This is the most important thing I've ever been at. You know, people who'd been through those experiences. But there was just a, a sweetness, a softness to the people who were at this, a soft, squishy humanness that encouraged me to think of people as, as like me, as, as looking for intimacy, as seeing their humanness and their humanity as their strength rather than their weakness. At the same time, you know, you go home and then there's this non-reality on television when you, you see Trump's people saying that, oh, we had the most people that ever came to a inauguration and all oh, the times is doctoring their photos or using stock photos of another year. That's not what happened. There were two million people there, not just a couple hundred thousand, if that. This new style of propaganda is very dangerous, I'll admit, but it's almost asking us to live in opposition to it. It's almost asking us to say, no, no, you're wrong. We hate you. That's not right. It's, it's, I almost feel like they're, they're laying traps as if to say, 
oh, only three people showed up at your protest, but two million people were at the inauguration. And the Times and NBC and MSNBC and all the people go, no, 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 that's not true. And their uh, minister of propaganda, uh, Kellyanne Conway, comes and says, well, you know, we have our, our alternate facts, our alternative facts to yours. That's setting us up. I feel like when we start living in opposition to that, when we get really mad at that, when when we allow that kind of disinformation to polarize us and make us hostile to the people that do believe in it, I feel like then we are submitting to their plan. That's the way modern propaganda works. It's disinformation of another kind. When you think about what ISIS does and how we so easily fall into their trap, you know, they cut off a head, they they put the video on Twitter, and Americans decide, oh, this is the Muslim, this is Islam. And then we turn on each other. We turn on our Muslims, and we we start to want to adopt policies like um, Trump would describe, of creating a registry or blocking the borders or sending spies into their places of worship. You know, we turn on each other, and ISIS gets exactly what they want. Right. ISIS wants division. They want the Muslims in America to be a persecuted minority who are increasingly picked on and eventually take action against America, against the, the rest of the people. Trump needs to keep his cult alive. That's his objective, is to keep this cult going. And anyone who's interacted with people in a cult know the way cults work is by creating a reality distortion field. You know, they create a landscape of alternative facts. Oh, these ones are against us, and we are the only ones who are touched by grace and who know what's going on. And Don't even listen to what the newspaper says or what TV says. They're all part of the thing that's against us. They're all hate our cult leader. The numbers of people at an inauguration, that doesn't even matter. I mean, sure, so the Times put the picture up and showed, oh, look at how few people came to this compared to to, uh, Obama's inauguration eight years ago. And then Trump goes nuts and all his people start saying how that's not true and engage us in this polarizing battle. They engage us in an argument over how many people showed up at a thing. And that really doesn't matter. What matters is the gutting of healthcare, the gutting of peace treaties, of NATO, this divisiveness over superficial issues, the retreat of much of America into delusion and its reinforcement by the federal government is not grounds to stand against those people. No, that's the plan for us to look at the people who are falling prey to the delusion and calling them the enemy and polarizing against them. You know, no, that's that's the plan. That's the polarization. That's the isolation. That's the animosity that they want. Because as long as we're saying these are our facts and they're different from your facts, um, they win. They have a divided America and then they do all these other things without us even noticing or without us acting against them because we're too busy acting against this this ruse, this red herring. You know, in reality, team human is all humans, even those who've been disconnected from reality. You know, the opportunity right now is to find another way, a way other than this tit for tat 
on facts and non-facts about things that don't even matter. Now, the opportunity is to forge a new path toward consensus, to help people wake up and see the reality around them. You know, if they're in that delusion, if they're in that frightened, defensive crouch where they're seeing the things that Trump and his people are describing, we need to help them wake up from that dream, from that nightmare that he's described of American cities in flames and black people doing terrible things and Muslims out to get us. You know, we have to wake them up from that. And the way to wake them up is not to yell at them. It's not to see them as the enemy, but to see them as our future allies, as new members of Team Human, and to look at them that way, because our friendly faces are going to do a much, much better job of waking them up and bringing them on board than our angry shouts. I saw those friendly faces at these marches. That's all I saw was friendly, fun, beautiful human faces. And I think what we have to do as we move forward into extremely contentious waters is remember to keep those smiles on, keep those eyes open, keep those hands outstretched, and welcome as many humans as we can into the loving bosom of truth. We are Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. My name is Ari Wallach, and I am on Team Human. I'm Brian Hughes, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Jonathan Larson, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Victor Saunders, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Andy Bickelman, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today is L.A. Kaufman, author of Direct Action. So, L.A. L.A. Kaufman, who I've known for off and on for 30 or 40 years, mostly off and recently on. I'm excited to have you back in, back in my life. I've been following your work not knowing it was you. In Mother Jones, uh, Baffler, Nation, weirder places um, <laughs> as well. And now, of course, with your new book, Direct Action for Verso, what you're talking about, it's, it's like the, the, the memes and ideas in your work are exactly what I'm just figuring out now, mm. you know, as an author and all that, that there is this thing. I mean, I feel a little stupid to even suggest it, but that there is this thing called direct action, and it's very different than indirect action. <laughs> Indeed it is. Indeed I mean, it is. So, I mean, it's a, the book's called, you know, Direct Action, Protest and the Reinvention of American Radicalism, which suggests that uh, it needs reinventing, that it's kind of, a, that the original invention has gone obsolete or has gone quiet or dormant on, on a certain level. Well, the intention is more to say that it has been reinvented and that one way to understand what's been happening to the American left since the 60s, which is a whole period of time that's been hardly written about. There's all these histories of the left during the 60s, but there's very little about the left after the 60s, that the protest movements and opposition politics have undergone a really thoroughgoing transformation and that direct action has been in the center of that process 
I know because you take most of the courses that we, you know, that we teach at Queens College in direct action sort of end around the civil rights movement, interestingly enough, as if it's not something that continued on or as if, I don't know, WTO protests, those were pretty direct action. Indeed, they were. Occupy was about direct action and Women's March on Washington, that's... That's direct action. Direct action. So it's been a lot. pipeline protests, there's been all kinds of things that have been happening. Black Lives Matter, there's been... Quite a lot of it act up. In some ways, I think the reason people don't have a handle on it is because there's been so much of it. Because what happened after the 60s was you had this enormous profusion and proliferation of movements at the same time that you had a general move towards decentralized organizational structures. So there's not like a single group or a single movement or a single leader that you put can point to over this time period and say, oh yeah, that's... That's what embodies the left or, you know, that's um, the group that uh, carried the left tradition through 30, 40 years. To, to understand the history, you have to look at all of these different movements that come and go, you know, that intervene for a while and then fade, but that beneath the surface have very deep connections to one another and are actually part of a larger, vibrant tradition of resistance. The relationships that I'm talking about and the connections I'm talking about are are not, you know, one movement being subsumed within another or some like larger single overarching revolution. It's much more pragmatic than that. It's things like, you know, you think about the AIDS activist movement, you think about ACT UP, you mostly think about men. You mostly think about men who uh, were HIV positive, who were out in the streets fighting. When you go and you look at who was actually doing, say, the direct action trainings to help people learn how to do that work, it was women who had been involved in various kinds of lesbian and peace organizing before that. You wouldn't normally say, oh, yeah, there's there's a direct lineage between the women's Pentagon action, which was this very theatrical action outside the Pentagon in 1980, and ACT UP. But in fact, there was, if you really look more deeply at what happens in these movements. So that's what I mean by connections. And it's more like an interweaving. It's more networks and weaving and ways in which people travel. You know, nobody, there's very few people who are who are strictly single-issue activists. People move from one movement to another over the course of their lives. Well, the thing I'm interested in right now, I mean, the problem that I've been dealing with is what feels to me like a a distinction between direct action and indirect action. So I'm being asked to help. Oh, will you, you know, help our uh, uh, anti-Trump thing or our pro-people thing or our, you know, how we're going to live through the next four years and what do we do? And it feels like there are two ways of looking at this challenge. The way that that I generally think about it is why don't we as people organize in our local communities to provide healthcare solutions to one another, to do local economic development, to create solidarity, figure out education. In other words, actually do mutual aid. And there's there are others who seem to feel that, no, 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 that's not what you do. What you have to do is... Talk back to your congressman or get involved in the Democratic Party and put up better candidates, which feels like that's almost more the indirect action. That's working through the existing political entities rather than just doing it. There's yet another alternative that you're not talking about. I mean, mutual aid is terrific and sustaining and empowering and is very deep and long term work. 
it's also very hard to scale up on the, you know, the, the, to the degree that you would need to, for instance, replace the health care that may be imminently cut by the Republican Congress. But in, you know, in between that indirect action and the, the mutual aid, there's direct action. And that's a variety of different ways of going outside the established mechanisms of participation in order to have an impact on the political process. Interestingly, it's often paired with kind of mutual aid projects as a way of sustaining people through through the challenging work of doing that. If you look at a place like Standing Rock, for example, you know, people are are building a model of a self-sustaining mutual aid community at the same time that they were going out and trying to blockade the pipelines. Mm-hmm. And that kind of creative tension between you know, creating the model of the world you want while acting to change the messed up world you happen to live in is one of the really interesting aspects of of activism over the last decades, I think. To some extent, I've lost faith in the political institutions that we don't, we're, we're outsourcing so much of our civic reality to these figures, to what's happening on, on CNN or MSNBC rather than just help that person across the street, you know, <laughs> just. Right. Well, I mean, the problem is that those figures on CNN happen to hold state power and are able to do an enormous amount of very bad things with it if we don't act as some sort of check. So and prevent us from so even while, doing the things we want to do. Exactly. So, you know, while I see real beauty in the approach that you're outlining, you know, unfortunately, we live in a messed up world full of powerful institutions that will just grind us all into the dust if we don't, in some way, leverage what power we we do have to stand up for just some basic values of human decency. And then, you know, the, the way we do that, I mean, I don't know if you remember back when we were in college, uh, remember Leo Schiff? I do Leo remember Schiff. Leo Schiff. He was this great nerdy I, guy who then discovered cooking right? and psych- yeah, 2D and psychedelics and became a cook mm-hmm. and then went to uh, Groton, Connecticut, where they had, had one of those new Trident nuclear submarines, chained himself to the thing and got arrested and went to jail for you know three years for having protested. And I thought, man, look what this guy did with his own body, you know, and back to the body for me. But he went and chained himself to the thing and put himself not just a personal risk in the moment, but let his body be incarcerated he spent, and spent these years in jail for what he believed in. Well, much respect to him for having done that. I know, but it's that's hard. I mean, yeah, well, that's about as high a bar as you get for activism. I mean, that kind of plowshares activism. There were others who did things like, you know, hammering on the cones of nuclear weapons. Right you face really serious felony charges when you do that. Really serious felony charges, the kind that don't get dropped down to misdemeanor. You know, I mean, I've, you know, I've been charged with plenty of serious stuff, but it's all, it's a kind of a dance where they, you know, they, they charge you with something and then by the time you show up at court, it's gotten reduced or dropped or something. Right. Not when you're hammering on nuclear weapons. They don't <laughs> mess around. So you're kind of, you know, you're kind of picking like, you know, it's like the most, the most intense. I mean, you know, you, you could go lock yourself to a bulldozer in North Dakota and not take nearly such a risk. But, right. But there's all kinds Do of things. Do a little earth that, first kind of stuff, you exactly. mean, rather than, But there's yeah. all kinds of, you know, that kind of organizing that requires such an enormous commitment of time, energy, bodily integrity. That's for very few people. Very few people are going to opt for that course. 
for for a lot of people, like for for many people who are going down to Washington for the Women's March, doing that is a huge step. They've never been to a, an event like this before, and they're uncertain about what to expect. You know, and so I salute that as well. To me, that's an act of courage as well to go when you've never done anything like that before in your life. Direct action doesn't have to be these kind of heroic individual acts that are that involve that level of self-sacrifice. It could just be showing up. It can just be showing up. It can just be standing on, you know, during the Iraq war, all over the country, there were all these people who just once a week would show up somewhere in their community with signs and just stand there for some, you know, for an hour or two every single week. So, you know, every Monday at four o'clock or something that a lot of senior citizens did and just be a presence, disrupt the landscape, interrupt the normal flow of life with a different message and a willingness to talk with people you know, that kind of work was really important. And I guess, I mean, if nothing else, it also creates solidarity between the people who feel this way. If you end up standing with a thousand people who oppose a certain war or a certain bill, at least you found, you know, you found the others. Right. I mean, sometimes there are moments when that's kind of all that a protest does. I mean, that's the way I feel about the protests that were outside Trump Tower right after the election. I went to a few of those. And I went to them because I wanted to be standing in a mass of people who were as upset and stunned as I was. Everyone has their own way of dealing with it. But I didn't think, you know, people were saying, like, what's strategic? No, sometimes it's not strategic. Sometimes, sometimes you just need the feeling of being around other people who share your values and share a commitment to try to do something to further them. Sometimes that's enough. Yeah, I mean, it... It sounds a little bit like what, you know, Larry Kramer was talking about in the early AIDS activism days when he was founding ACT UP and he was saying, we need to generate an immune response. You know, we need to get mad so that the actions, while on the one hand, the actions were to alert the rest of the world that there's this problem, they were also a way of galvanizing a community to do something. I mean, their work was also very much incarnate when they did you know, in, for uh, for what cardinal was it that uh, you it, wrote about it in the book? That yeah. mean cardinal said... Cardinal uh, O'Connor. That was uh, the most controversial action that ACT UP ever did. It was in 1989, and it was, a, it was a collaboration with a reproductive rights group that often gets left out of the story, but is important to elevate, especially now with reproductive mm-hmm. rights under threat again. So both on the issue of reproductive rights and safer sex, essentially around condom use, ACT UP and this other group, WHAM, went into St. Patrick's Cathedral and held a die-in in the aisles during Mass. I mean, it actually had been done before. Some nuns had disrupted Mass during the anti-war movement, the Vietnam anti-war movement. But at the time, it was just considered, you know, an unbelievable transgression for people, you know, to bring their unruly bodies into this space and be lying in the ground and yelling and... Well, um, the symbolism of doing a die-in in a Catholic church where they're you know, worshiping the death and the sacrifice of this young man. And, you know, it was... And telling people not to use, uh, you know, a piece of latex that could save their lives. You right. know, I mean, the life and death stakes were very real for everyone participating in that action. The die, You know, sometimes people do a die-in and it's symbolic. But in the case of ACT UP, many of the people in who were doing the actions were themselves very close to death. Yeah, you pointed out that... Where Zoe Leonard is saying, part of what bonded us and what made ACT UP such an incredible, amazing family was that we literally cleaned up each other's shit and went to each other's funerals. 
So here were people who were bonded in real space already. I mean, it's part of what they had a pre-existing, uh, pre-existing human bond. Well, or yeah. they didn't, or they formed the bonds through the activism. And so many people with HIV in those years were abandoned by their families. So people right. made new families in the course of organizing, right? I mean, those relationships didn't necessarily pre-exist ACT UP. They were relationships that were formed in the course of organizing that became a new kind of family and a kind of community both of resistance but also of care. Right. So in, in a sense, the mutual aid comes out of the direct action. Yeah, I'm not. I I don't know. They're so they're so, <laughs> so bound inter- up with each other that you, right. can, you almost can't separate them. Right. I mean, that was the way I looked at Occupy to a large extent. Was okay as this prototype that here we are modeling a behavior. How can we all live together in this little piece of cement with drum circles, with drum circles, <laughs> and angry stockbrokers <laughs> and cops and everything else coming coming at us. But there's all these moments that to me, when it clicks, and maybe that's just the high of protest, but there is that, you've been at enough protest to know there's that moment when, it's just like when ravers used to talk about that moment at the rave at two in the morning when everything clicked and we're one organism. In protest, it definitely happens that it's like, oh wow, I am actually, uh, I'm both surrendering my individuality to this group and experiencing a more profound sense of agency as an individual at the same time. No, oh, it's a very nice way to put it. Yeah, there's um, there's an alchemy. That's uh, to me. To me, I always think there's a little bit. There's an element of magic and alchemy in organizing, mm. because you can do all the right things sometimes and have the right issue and the right framing and the right people, and it still just doesn't click and doesn't resonate. And then there are these these moments. Um, the uh, authors, uh, Mark and Paul Angler, who have a, a, a wonderful book called This is an Uprising, talk about these at the moments of the moments of the whirlwind where Seattle was the Seattle WTO protests were another big example of that, mm-hmm. where, you know, there suddenly was just this buzz and this energy and people found themselves doing extraordinary things together that not only changed the world, but changed them and changed them forever. That, you know, that's part of when you take, when you participate in something that is so profoundly embodied, it, it, it changes you. There's a lot of despair, though, right now, which is, you know, kind of paralyzing people because there, there are some who believe that just in a year or two that the people in power will be able to kind of undo democracy anyway, that, you know, they'll disenfranchise the voters or do voter suppression or just change the books or put in Diebold machines that are secretly programmed to do bad things. And now we're stuck with, you know, Erdogan for the rest of, uh, Mm -hmm. for the rest of time. I mean, do you, you don't share that pessimism? Um, what, what was it Gramsci said, you know, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will? I mean, I do, I, but I, I got to get out of bed in the morning. And for me, throughout my life, joining together with other people and organizing to try to make the world more like the world I'd like to see is the way I deal with despair. That's how I... And I know that's not the typical reaction. A lot of people are feeling very paralyzed. But I do think I do think it's not all written yet. You know, very, very ominous forces are are on the move and looking to undermine our democracy, but but it hasn't happened yet. You know, there's so much, some of the fear that I'm seeing, 
I, you know, I'm like one of the lone dissenters on all the security stuff that everybody's doing. You know, everybody's like, oh, you've got to switch to signal and you've got to yeah. secure communications and delete everything with after an hour. And, you know, there you might be under surveillance. I mean, I'm somebody who's probably been under surveillance for decades. And you at a certain point, you just have to sh- kind of shrug some of that off and still act in public and not let yourself get paralyzed by fear. That's That's where the hope lies now is in somehow... You know, acting as if as if the fear can't touch us. You know, doing things like I'm 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 hoping to get down to D.C. in time. There's going to be a uh, a big queer dance party outside Mike Pence's house tomorrow night, and <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like my soul needs that right now. <laughs> oh, that sounds fun. Fun and defiant <laughs> and important and uh, sustaining. There is something so defiant about celebration. In the midst of all this, that's almost the thing I love the most about it. It's that we're not yelling, we're not burning things in effigy, we're dancing. Absolutely. We can't always operate in that key. But I think it's in this moment when we're dreading the worst, but we can still hold off the worst, I think it's a, it's a fantastic mode of being for protest to be, you know, defiant and rude and unruly, but fun and upbeat and celebratory at the same time. Yeah, what would you, I mean, I know you do a little of this in the book, which everyone should read, but what's, what's your advice now for, for people to kind of find the others, forge solidarity and enlist? I mean, people are ready now, to, I think, to take direct action. Well, I think, as you said, there's, you know, there's groups popping up everywhere. People are organizing everywhere. I mean, that's the, you know, the the silver lining of this moment is that you see all kinds of groups coming together and initiatives starting and, you know, taking off on a huge scale that, you know, were unthinkable uh, a year or two ago. So, but I think, I think it's important not to just join a Facebook group, you know, or not to just join an online action, though there's a lot of ways you can leverage your power and have an impact doing that. There's something special about being in a room with other people and trying to do something together in person in the real world. So that's what I would encourage people to do is to look for, there's many, many, many groups that are that are organizing you know, for any issue that you that that moves you and speaks to you it t- takes a pretty modest google search to find something but that's what i recommend is to go actually to a meeting don't just go to a protest go to a meeting and be part of the discussion and the planning and the thinking about how we can act at this time nobody has all the answers it's the process of figuring it out that is that process of empowerment Right, and the and the the collateral adage, if <laughs> if you will, to that is, uh, you get to counteract the isolation and alienation on which dictatorship depends. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Dictators don't like it when people come together in the real world and talk to each other. Right, I mean, that's intri- that's an intrinsic threat. I mean, that's why gatherings, you know, large gatherings, are always banned. I mean. 
you know, that's also, this is a whole other thread, but, you know, that's why after the movements of the 60s, cities kind of got redesigned to have more privatized public spaces, fewer truly public spaces, there's fewer ways for people to act, there's more and more restrictions on part of the whole corporatization of the, you know, the neoliberal city, there's regimes have always been threatened by crowds and by, you know, by people in public. And so continuing to stake that out, that's, you know, that was the other reason I was in front of Trump Tower and the nights after he was elected was doing that, being in the street, saying, no, Fifth Avenue belongs to us tonight. That, it, 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 it's, a, it's another one of the things that helps hold back the tide. You know, one of the, the book starts with the story of this enormous direct action that no one has ever heard about that is, by some standards, the largest direct action in American history, which was an attempt to shut down the federal government nonviolently with, you know, through direct action in response to the Vietnam War. It was in May, day 71. And, you know, it was about maybe 25,000 people, so a large crowd, but not hundreds of thousands, you know, a large crowd, but you don't, you know, you don't need more than that if people are willing to like block traffic and block right. streets. And the way the Nixon administration responded was they simply sent in the military and rounded everybody up. There were 7,000 arrests in one day, so many that they had to, to fill RFK Stadium with all the people, you know, so there is a way, there is a way in which, you know, when, when, when we, we demonstrate our collective power in a way that truly threatens the established order, there, uh, you know, can be some surprising responses. <laughs> Right. But when it comes, when it's enough, like we witnessed in the Czech Republic back when, when it's millions of people taking to the street at a certain point, it's everybody, you know? Well, and also, <laughs> I mean, in the, these May Day protests, you know, they were, they were considered very unruly and, and obnoxious at the time. But if you, you can go and look into, um, you know, the records that are now available and, and, and established that, in fact, it was one of the things that got Nixon to accelerate withdrawal from Vietnam, that it actually, it actually unsettled him, rattled him so badly. It was such a specter of revolution on his doorstep, people trying to shut down the government nonviolently with their bodies. So there are ways in which even when, even when they round everybody up, you can still win. Yeah. So I'm going to be interested to see in the in this new administration, if what we do in reality can matter as much to him as what's happening on Twitter mm. or somewhere else, where mm. where does he live? Mm. You know, and uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. We will see. <laughs> we will see. And, uh, and I'll tell you this. I mean, in closing, at least I'm I'm, although I'm uncertain and nervous about where things are going. Um, the fact that you exist actually gives me that hope and heart, you know, that, that, that not just your courage and willingness to do what's necessary, but your, your optimism and your heart and hope and, uh, and great mind, you know, your great way of, of, of not just strategizing, but just moving forward step by step. This is our tradition. This is who we are done it before they're going to do it after we're gone and this is our this is our role at this time of our of human history well thank you that's that's a very kind thing to say well thanks thanks for being i just i'm i just feel glad to know a link in the great chain well it's been delightful talking with you cool well welcome welcome to team human glad to be on team human <laughs> 
Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Thanks to all of our new listeners who have emailed, tweeted, and supported Team Human with donations through the website. Special thanks to Meetup for their underwriting support. Start your own Team Human Meetup at meetup.com. Thanks to Aaron Dignan at theready.com. Our friends at Zago designed our logo and supported Team Human with an underwriting donation. And special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for sharing the music you heard on today's show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.